Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, listeners, to the second episode of our chat with Dr. Phil Berry. Having covered the examination, presentation, and differential diagnosis of our patient with chronic liver disease, we discussed the investigations and management of these patients along with some common examiner questions. Finally, Phil tackles his quiz the consultant topic of Star Wars, which is certainly not one to be missed. And I've been truly delighted to hear of so much success on the Buy Me A Coffee page recently. So this week's thank yous go to Jill, who allowed me to join her as a running companion. So congratulations to Jill on her first time pass. Thank you as well to Fiona, who also passed first time for her donation. Thank you as well to Lawrence and to Phil for your kind donations too. I'm consistently humbled by your kind support for the podcast but I'm even more excited for hearing the successes of our listeners, so please keep them coming, guys. Let's get back to my chat with Phil Berry, where we got started talking about the investigations and management of our CLD patients. And then after that, we're going to be uh, discussing our investigations and management with the uh, examiner. It's often going to go along the lines of if this, if this patient presents on the acute medical take, how would you uh, approach the management of this patient? So, Phil, starting off with the investigations, the, the baseline routine investigations for this patient, what, what's going to be really important for our listeners to, to know what to look at uh, on the routine blood test for, for these patients? Yeah, so laboratory tests, full blood count looking for low HB from chronic disease or, or acute blood loss. You can look closer at the, at the red cell picture to see if it's macrocytic, which can be associated with alcohol use. The platelets is important. Uh, someone with established portal hypertension will have a degree of, of platelet sequestration um, into the spleen and be thrombocytopenic. And low platelet is part of many scoring systems of liver fibrosis. The white cell count, you sometimes get pan-cytopenic um, appearances, but it's less specific. So HB and platelets, definitely. And then you're into your biochemistry. Uh, you should start with eusinase. The renal function is important, 
um, many patients with who are on the road towards hepatorenal syndrome will commence with edema stroke ascites. And if you're beginning to see renal dysfunction, then you can begin to think about overdiuresis, dehydration, and then sometimes hepatorenal syndrome, which you can introduce as a possible differential diagnosis there. An isolated high urea could be a sign of acute upper GI bleeding. Um, patients with, with cirrhosis often have low urea uh, generally. It's not always easy to, to tell, but um, definitely one to look out for. And low sodium is classic because of that activated renin-angiotensin axis and salt and water, excess water retention, you get hyponatremia. That can also be due to diuretic use. So you're opening up a whole field of complexity with the use and ease, and you could talk about it all day. Liver function tests are obviously something you want to get into quite quickly. Um, the bilirubin is the number one. That's either high or not. If it's high, it's consistent. It's got to be conjugated bilirubin, uh, largely, um, but you won't be given that generally. Um, and then you've got your your enzymes. And I think it's worth having a bit of a language around there, around biliary enzymes and hepatocellular enzymes. The biliary enzymes are alkaline phosphatase and gamma GT. And if they're elevate, elevated, um, predominantly elevated, then you've got a predominantly cholestatic liver function test profile, which might point you towards a biliary pathology, such as PBC, PSC, or biliary obstruction, obviously. And then if the ALT and AST are elevated, you're more hepatocellular. That's more consistent with viral hepatitis, recent alcohol use. People like to talk about the AST-ALT ratio. And if that's elevated or more than one to be indicative of alcohol-related disease, I don't think it's that reliable, but it's, it's worth bearing in mind. And finally, on the, on the baseline laboratories, there's the coagulation. And so one of the fundamental jobs of the liver is to create clotting factors if your INR or your prothrombin time is elevated, that's consistent with liver disease. Don't forget, though, vitamin K, a deficiency or malabsorption can bump that up as well in biliary obstruction. I think that's about as uh, the, the, that's the main laboratory messages. Yeah, fantastic. And again, it's going to be, uh, as, as you mentioned, with the liver enzymes, that was one of the questions I was going to ask is how, how important is that ratio? Because it's one of those things you learn through your sort of MRCP. You think, oh, yes, AL, AST to ALT ratio. That's very important. But actually, you know, it's interesting to hear that it's not always as reliable as we might wish it to be. And so the thing with this station, as we've already discussed, is that having a history is going to be of critical importance, which in paces we don't have, unfortunately. And so uh, the etiology with uh, investigations alone is going to incorporate a, a significant amount of your history. So particularly with alcohol, that's going to be, as we said, very difficult to pin down. But there are other things which may indicate the non-alcoholic or now, well, I don't know if I should use the new nomenclature now, the metabolic alcohol steatic liver steatic hepatitis. Whatever it is. <laughs> um, but other things which may be supportive, so things like a lipid profile or an HbA1c may help with that, Phil, as well. Yeah, I think these are real sort of outpatient secondary actions. You know, if you're settling in on a diagnosis of, of possible non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and, and cirrhosis, you're going to be looking for elements that support that metabolic derangement. But in the end stage with cirrhosis, things can go a bit haywire, to be honest. You won't be classically necessarily diabetic. 
and your dyslipidemia might not be notable. But um, and that, as a hepatologist, you know, I get a little bit uncomfortable beginning to try and make diagnosis of uh, diabetes or pre-diabetes and looking at HbA1c's. It's out of our comfort zone slightly, but it's really important because a lot, if not most, of the morbidity from non-alcoholic liver disease is from cardiovascular morbidity and uh, premature cardiovascular events, or even malignancy, um, because that metabolic derangement increases the risk of that as well. So you've got to have a sort of a broad view there, but you wouldn't necessarily make all those diagnoses on your own. Uh, there is an endocrine and metabolic element there. The, the ASC-ALT, coming back to that briefly, in a lot of uh, laboratories don't test AST routinely. You have to ask for it. Same with gamma-GT. Um, in some hospitals, you know, people will have noticed that they don't get gamma-GT unless they tick a different box. Same with AST. So they're not fundamental to the diagnosis. They can be useful. You know, if you're getting confused and you think there might be some muscle breakdown causing the ALT, AST to go up and and in some other conditions, you know, it might be specifically helpful. There's something called the FIB4 score, which is a really helpful non-invasive suggestion of whether there's fibrosis, which incorporates, you couldn't work it out in your head, but it incorporates age, platelet count, AST and ALT in, a, in an equation. And if that's elevated above, say, 1.4, it increases the chance that you have significant fibrosis or cirrhosis. And that's really, really helpful. And that's where AST can be useful. Wow, fantastic. I'm definitely going to have to make a note of that on my uh, MD calc, see if I can uh, add some credibility to my uh, diagnosis on call. And then moving back to our etiology-specific uh, investigations, Usually this just goes into the part of the non-invasive liver screen, which gets requested for, you know, however many patients there are suffering from liver disease in hospital. But so the viral serology will be be a part of that. I don't know particularly that you'll be expected to interpret that, but certainly something to mention, Phil, as one of the common causes. Yeah, and it helps if you if you're a little bit more specific. So hepatitis B, there's a myriad of tests you could ask for, but what you're looking for is hepatitis B surface antigen, which means you're actively infected. The core antibody could indicate previous exposure and natural immunity. Um, and the DNA, et cetera, is if you're diagnosed with a hep C surface antigen, sorry, hep B surface antigen. Hepatitis C, you look for the um, antibody, the IgG. Uh, and if that's positive, you would then go on to do an RNA level to see if they're actively viremic. But hep C, IgG is where you start. And D or delta goes along with hepatitis B. You could do that at the outset or later on. Um, but it's to be complete, it's fair enough to, to ask for that. The other viruses, A and E, cause acute hepatitis through fecal-oral transmission. So it's B, C and D you're really interested in in terms of infection. If you're doing bloodborne viruses, you should do HIV as well because the same risk factors apply and it could be very relevant but obviously it's not an independent cause of cirrhosis except in certain special circumstances so that's the viral side um, and the next biggie i would say is the the metabolic side um, for hemochromatosis and the first test for that is ferritin um, if it's normal they're very unlikely to have classic hemochromatosis but ferritin alone is not enough to diagnose it you need an elevated uh, transferrin saturation of over 50-55%, um, but the examiner might push you on that. But ferritin is a good baseline, cheap test. Copper and ceruloplasmin also comes into the metabolic. They're expensive, probably overused, but um, it's certainly very reasonable to ask for ceruloplasmin, which would be uh, low in many cases of Wilson's, but is not particularly accurate. And I've just come from an excellent talk this morning by one of our fellows around 
how difficult it is to diagnose Wilson's. It's an absolute nightmare and we always get it wrong. But you've got to talk about it because if you don't think about it, you don't diagnose it. And um, we will not save any patients at all. So certainly thrilloplasm is reasonable. Um, you'd also think about um, slit lab examination for Kaiserflasche rings in the same breath. But obviously that's not a laboratory test. Um, alpha-1 antitrypsin is easy to do. It, very low levels are associated with uh, cirrhosis. And then I think we'll, the next big bucket is the autoimmune uh, liver profile. And they tend to come all together. Um, anti-nuclear antibody, anti-smooth muscle antibody, anti-mitochondrial, which is um, pathognomic, I was always told, for primary biliary cholangitis, anti-liver uh, kidney microsomal. Um, and you can get other antibodies as well, but those are the main ones you would get in your typical first-line liver-specific um, autoantibody screen. And while you're doing that, you should check for immunoglobulin levels as well. Typically, if someone with active autoimmune hepatitis, you will get a raised IgG. And I, I always question the diagnosis if the IgG is completely normal, because you need to have an activated immune system to, to, to diagnose someone with active inflammation there. And really, that's, that's the main laboratory approach for the common um, etiological uh, diagnoses here. One which occasionally comes up, but more in a NILS sort of pattern clinically rather than maybe in, in paces is, is other virus such as cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus. In my experience, I haven't seen too many patients with chronic liver disease. I mean, I'm sure it must happen, Phil, but uh, how, how relevant are those in this sort of situation, in an exam situation? They don't. They don't cause chronic liver disease. They cause acute grumbling, you know, maybe subacute symptoms but they do not cause cirrhosis. So the reason we check for those is if someone's got an undiagnosed transaminitis, which is a different, you know, slightly different situation. But someone's got an ALT, you know, 120, 150, 200, and we're just not getting anywhere, begin to do the, um, the, those, those, those viral levels in case they've, they, you know, they're chronically reacting to it. Um, they are a cause of splenomegaly, though. So uh, if, if you have a younger patient with splenomegaly, um, then you should definitely think of CMV and EBV. You should definitely think of um, any underlying immunosuppressing um, situations. But really, I don't think EBV and CMV are relevant to the decompensated or the compensated cirrhosis story. Brilliant. So then moving from our uh, lab tests, we'll often move on to the imaging. And uh, I guess the, the main seminal investigation, Phil, is going to be an, an ultrasound of the abdomen and liver. That's right. That's the first place to start. But ultrasound is... Not always as specific as you'd want it to be. It normally, um, and, and it's not, cannot exclude cirrhosis. It will pick up a typical end-stage cirrhosis type appearance with a you know, contracted, irregular, scarred liver. And it might also pick up the splenomegaly and certainly would pick up ascites. But if it says the liver looks smooth and of normal size, it doesn't mean they don't have chronic liver disease. It will often pick up uh, fat infiltration. There will be um, a sort of echogenic appearance. And most scans that I look at, there's a suggestion of fatty infiltration. But that's about the, the utility of it, really. It's really important to rule out focal liver lesions, a hepatoma or metastases. And in um, the assessment of a liver patient, it's really important to think about the vasculature as well. So the portal vein, is there any thrombosis? Is there flow in the portal vein? Because that's life-changing. If there's a portal vein thrombosis that is permanent, that might preclude the opportunity for transplantation later. The hepatic veins are really difficult 
to identify unless you've spoken to your radiologist first, but there you're thinking about Bud Chiari syndrome, which is something we haven't mentioned in our discussion so far, but definitely consider that in the younger patient with ascites or edema and, um, and liver disease. That's under the vascular liver disease category, and we really should have mentioned it. Um, and diagnose that by demonstrating um, thrombosis or poor flow in the hepatic veins. But sometimes you need a CT or an MRV, MRI scan to really look at that carefully. Yeah, brilliant. And then there are some uh, more specialist procedures which would be necessary. Um, we could, I'm sure we could talk about this till the till the cows come home and we could talk about as, the investigation of ascites as well. But I guess if there is ascites present on the ultrasound, it would be important to tap it. And that can help with etiology as well, looking at the serum ascites albumin gradient. That's really important. And um, it should be routine. It's not hard to do. Obviously, you're not going to do it in the exam. But you want to assess the ascites for uh, protein content, albumin content specifically, because that's what you input into the SARG ratio, the serum ascites um, albumin gradient. And if it's more than more than 11, it suggests that's that's 11 grams per liter or 1.1 grams per deciliter. That means there's a, cha- a big difference between what's circulating in the bloodstream and what's in the ascites. And the way to conceptualize that is almost thinking of plasma going through a, um, a, a sieve and the stuff that comes down into the abdomen is much lower in albumin than what's circulating in the bloodstream. So you, what you want is you want the ascites and the plasma to be, or the serum to be quite different in character, which suggests it's quite a passive buildup of ascites uh, due to osmotic you know, fluid dynamics uh, largely. So you want low protein, low albumin fluid to diagnose cirrhotic ascites. As cirrhosis isn't the only cause for a low albumin um, ascites, but it's the one we're, we're sort of thinking about. And if it's higher in um, albumin, and protein, then you're going to be worried about more active diseases like malignancy around the peritoneum or tuberculosis. So that's really, really important. And it's really important you've got your head straight around the SARG and what it means. You're also going to send it off for cytology in case you pick up any uh, cancer cells. Um, I've I've merrily treated for cirrhosis uh, patients for, for you know a couple of weeks in the past before suddenly a result comes back to tell me they've got um, disseminated adenocarcinoma. So that's really important. And you're also going to send it for microscopic examination. And in, in, in the ED or on the ward, this is the number one thing to make sure they haven't got spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And that is all hinging on the neutrophil count, polymorph uh, count, which is over 250 uh, per cubic millimeter. And that's diagnostic generally of SPP. Fantastic. And just coming to the, the much further advanced uh, procedural side of hepatology, liver biopsy is one thing which uh, I guess you will far more about than any of the listeners, but when, when would that be helpful in the workup of a patient? Yeah, it's, it's not usually necessary. The history and the serology uh, usually enough to tell you the diagnosis, yeah, hepatitis, etc., autoimmune, alcohol use. Um, the reason the biopsy becomes necessary is if you can't work it out um, and you think histological examination will give you more detail. If they have autoimmune hepatitis, you would normally do a biopsy to get a baseline data and to confirm it for you because they're going to be on treatment for the rest of their life. 
and you really need to be 100% sure before you start. The other conditions where you might get a biopsy in the outpatient setting um, is if you're not sure how much fibrosis they have or if they're cirrhotic or not. And your fibro scan, which we should mention alongside ultrasound, is not clear. Now, we've talked about ultrasound, but fibro scan is used on nearly every single hepatology patient now at some stage. And that is a, a methodology of assessing or estimating liver um, stiffness as a proxy for fibrosis stage. And it feels a bit like having an ultrasound, but there's a different type of probe that goes on the edge of your liver between the ribs and sends little shock waves through it. And it measures how fast those shock waves bounce around the liver and come back. And the faster they travel, the stiffer the liver. And uh, you get given a good quantitative um, result there. And it can tell you with some confidence um, whether they have cirrhosis or not. But if it's a little bit unclear, then you might need a biopsy. Um, the fibro scan also tells you how much fat there is in the liver through a different technique. So be you should be conversant with the existence of the fibro scan because it has pushed biopsy to the margin. Saying that, we still do a lot of biopsies. As I say, for autoimmune, if we're worried about Wilson's, we did one the other day to measure the copper, the dry weight copper, as a, as a sort of absolute diagnostic uh, step. Um, we also do it in alcohol use when a patient is being considered for treatment for acute alcoholic hepatitis and you're not quite sure how much acute inflammation there is and how much underlying fibrosis or cirrhosis there is. So we still do biopsy and also in the workup for transplantation where the transplant centers normally need as much data as possible, we, we often biopsy for completeness. So definitely understand biopsy. Um, be aware that there are a couple of techniques for biopsy. Um, the, the percutaneous route where you anesthetize the skin in the right upper quadrant between the ribs and ask them to uh, breathe out and, and quickly stab them with a big needle, that is, that is used and it's done by radiologists rather than gastroenterologists nowadays um, under ultrasound guidance. But we also have transjugular biopsy, which is really helpful in patients who are more acutely unwell or coagulopathic or thrombocytopenic. And you can also measure portal pressure at the same time and get more hemodynamic data. So um, be aware that transjugular biopsies is, is an option with a lower risk of bleeding and a lower risk of abdominal injury as well. So then moving on, on to the management of these patients, um, it's, it's going to be very dependent on the exact etiology as we've discussed. And I guess the one thing which is uh, going to be universal is an, an MDT approach to these patients with uh, chronic liver disease. And I guess for each independent cause, there's going to be various members of the MDT to, to help you in, in your long-term management of these patients, Phil. No, absolutely. Um, you know, there's no point diagnosing these things if you can't do something to stop it progressing any further. And the patient with established cirrhosis is of coming to the end of a long journey already and it may be that you can't halt the progression even if you take away the driving factor there is often i think a sort of momentum almost to, to, to cirrhosis which means there is a good proportion of patients every year will decompensate even if they stop drinking or lose weight or you treat the hepatitis which we can come to in a minute they will continue to decompensate or they've already developed an increased risk 
of hepatocellular carcinoma, um, which is difficult to turn off sometimes. So you keep an eye on these patients forever and ever with um, with six monthly ultrasound scans and blood tests at the minimum. So nevertheless, it's important to to address the underlying factors. And that's where you get into, as you say, multidisciplinary approach, um, psychosocial support, um, especially for um, alcohol dependence and specific medical interventions for the for the other etiologies. And that's where you need to engage with with wider teams. I mean, alcohol is the big one um, and very difficult. You know, dependency is very difficult to to crack. It's not enough just to say to the patient, you need to stop drinking. Although I've said those words you know, many hundreds of times, but knowing and knowing that it doesn't make a difference what I say, they need that social support, they need that professional support outside the hospital, or specific strategies, or even medications to reduce their dependency on alcohol. So that's, that's important. And, and in the alcohol setting, there's more generalized holistic care to consider as well around nutritional support or vitamin deficiencies, which are can be secondary to that dependence on alcohol. So dietetic support, very important, addressing any vitamin, thiamine deficiencies, etc. Um, especially as an inpatient, you don't want to miss um, Wernicke Korsakoff's um, uh, acute thiamine deficiency and you know irreversible damage into the central nervous system. Um, around so that's alcohol around around NAFLD, possibly even harder because um, the ones with uh, chronic liver disease that's definitely related to metabolic dysfunction, of which obesity is one manifestation, um, are coming to you in a situation where they cannot just change their lifestyle or switch off the underlying metabolic or genetic factors that have brought them to that uh, position. Uh, and that's where you need to engage with specialists in weight loss, for instance, or bariatric clinics. There's loads of new medications or several very popular new medications for weight loss that I'm beginning to refer people for and have a lower threshold now for bariatric intervention and referral to bariatric clinics. If you've got end-stage cirrhosis, you're not going to get those. But if you're on the way or you have cirrhosis, which is well compensated, you could be considered for some pretty fundamental weight loss approaches. Um, but at the very least, you'll need um, support to look at your diet, balance your diet, calorie count, increase aerobic exercise, get those lifestyle changes embedded into your life. But ethically, it's a it's it's a fascinating area. You know how much is down to the patient, how much is down to the medical community for for supporting those patients and changing the metabolic sort of milieu in which the liver has been damaged. Um, but it's a really evolving field and, and very interesting. And and let's just talk about viral hepatitis as well, which is mainly which which perhaps is the most satisfying diagnosis to make because you can switch off that driving injury. Uh, you can treat hepatitis C very effectively now with the newer generation directly acting um, antivirals. They are amazing. I started my training when we gave people interferon for forty eight weeks. Um, watch them suffer the side effects of, of weekly interferon injections, um, psychological, physical, etc. And there was only ever a 50% chance, you know, overall that they would be cured. With the new medications, uh, which were invented over the last uh, 10 plus years, they have an over 90 to 95% efficacy, the very low side effects, very expensive, but the government has bought into hepatitis C eradication. And as has WHO and other governments around the world. So it's very easy to access these medications, which you just take for three months usually, and you can be very confident your hepatitis C will be eradicated. 
Um, so that's really satisfying. If you catch that early, you can get rid of that problem. Hepatitis B, a bit more difficult, very effective, equally effective medications, but you have to stay on them for life generally, or at least until there are signs of permanent viral response. But they are well-tolerated medications, but there's a lot of research going on there as well. So the, the viral is, is quite satisfying if you catch uh, a diagnosis. And I guess one of those the things relevant for our listeners will be that they're they probably won't be uh, expected to know the exact regimes of these antiviral no. medications, but just just uh, an appreciation for the fact that these need to be started by a specialist would be sufficient for uh, for the discussion with the examiner. Yeah, absolutely. No one would expect even names, you know, of drugs. But to understand that they're treatable um, is really important, and probably just general knowledge to understand that hepatitis C has undergone a revolution um, in therapeutics. You know, in the last one to two decades is 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 important yeah fantastic and then moving on to the other the other categories the metabolic the hemochromatosis uh phil i guess in my career i've only seen one person be venesected for hemochromatosis but um but that's a potential treatment option for them yeah it's the only treatment option uh, again you're not going to reverse uh, established cirrhosis but if you're talking about hemochromatosis as an examination you'll be talking about cases of all you know, any point on the timeline and venesection is a treatment. You have accumulated too much iron in the body because of a genetic defect, which is classically they're, they're the, the H63 gene and the C285 gene. And they will give you the classic genetic predisposition to iron absorption and deposition into the organs. And it can go into the heart, go into the skin, as you mentioned earlier on, and importantly, into the liver. And the way you, you mobilize that is by giving someone a negative iron balance. And that's by taking out pints and pints of blood now you will refer to a hematology clinic usually to supervise that and you'll have a unit of blood taken out quite frequently until they begin to see a, a, a response in your ferritin and then once there's a response you can go down to much less frequent venous sections i always feel sorry for these patients I, I don't like having blood taken and i really feel sorry for them they have to have this huge needle in but it's like giving blood basically but every week or then every month or every three months and every six months as they stabilize but that is the only treatment for genetic hemochromatosis the the alpha-1 antitrypsin is not treatable at, at the moment there are studies into replenishing alpha-1 antitrypsin stores but it's not really treatable and the Wilsons uh, with into the small print stuff again, but it's um, it's about chelation therapy, you know, under specialized clinics. But it's really important to make that diagnosis early to avoid liver failure and death and neurological uh, disability as well. And it is, uh, I wouldn't say easy to treat, but it is treatable. But the medications are very potent and can have some side effects. We haven't talked about the the autoimmune ones, which occupies a lot of my time because liver clinics you know attract the, these smaller numbers of what are rare conditions but there's, there's enough people around with autoimmune hepatitis and psc and pbc and they've all got their specific treatment approaches the the autoimmune hepatitis is is just immunosuppression usually with steroids and azathioprine or or second line agents if it's harder to control primary biliary cholangitis is frustrating you treat with ursodeoxycholic acid but if you don't respond to that um, and some people don't, you've got to go for more difficult to obtain medications. And PSC is probably the most challenging one of all, primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is seen often in the association with inflammatory bowel disease. 
So coming back to our examination, you see someone with signs or a scar of a colectomy, say, or they or they got a stoma, or they te- and they're a youngish patient, and they tell you they've got inflammatory bowel disease. Immediately think about PSC, primary sclerosing cholangitis, but it is not treatable with medications at the moment. It's it's monitoring and anticipating complications. That's all we can do at the moment, and transplantation when the time comes. Yeah, fantastic. So that's the approach of uh, management to each of the etiologies that we've discussed. I guess one of the really important things on the medical take will be managing and treating the complications, Phil, which we've sort of discussed through the course of this discussion. Um, and at least when I was doing my uh, work and revision for the for the exam, I used to divide these into um, complications related to hepatic or hepatocellular dysfunction, and then those related to portal hypertension i guess the first thing to talk about would be coagulopathy is it is it helpful to sort of acutely help coagulopathy or is that just uh, something to note and uh, only take a- active steps if there's active bleeding yeah yeah you've got it you know over treating it at high inr is is not good there's a lot of um, data now suggesting we we have over treated coagulopathy for instance for acidic drains the, the modern way is not to correct a high INR for an acidic drain, for instance, because it's a waste of um, FFP and doesn't change the risk of bleeding. If you do, you, you know, give blood products, you're, you're giving the patient the risk of a transfusion-related morbidity as well um, and wasting precious resources. Obviously, if someone's hemorrhaging, uh, coming in with a varicocele bleed or a hemorrhage somewhere else, you correct the coagulation as an emergency, but not just because the numbers incorrect so you shouldn't respond to blood tests in isolation really yeah fantastic and so variceal bleeding is something which is really important and uh, rather than dwell on that in this episode uh, phil as i'm sure you know we have a previous episode on calling gastro out of hours which our listeners can find uh, earlier on in the podcast feed so i encourage you to have a listen to that our conversation with dr ajay verma from uh, kettering who gave us a great lowdown on management of the unstable uh, gi bleed out of hours but then something specific to chronic liver disease would be en- encephalopathy as well so in the uh, decompensated patient phil what should we do about encephalopathic patients obviously be aware you know of of them from a sort of resuscitation point of view you know are they very unconscious are they comatose do they need an airway assessment um are they breathing is their airway patent etc um but to get on top of encephalopathy which will often accompany a generalized decompensation episode may be driven by a bleed or sepsis or some other intercurrent you know acute insult you you are aiming to bring down the ammonia now ammonia does not correlate linearly to encephalopathy grade um, we haven't talked about it in our baseline blood tests because it doesn't have a place there. But you might begin to measure um, ammonia if you have a significant encephalopathy later. Essentially, for the typical patient with cirrhosis who is encephalopathic, you want to make sure they're hydrated, make sure they're not septic, make sure they're opening their bowels. And that's when you come to the old standbys of lactulose, a generous dose two or three times a day, not just 10 mils, maybe not just 20 mils, you know, maybe 20 to 40 mils, two or three times a day, get the bowels going at least twice a day, two soft stools. That's the old teaching. And then that increased transit in intestinal contents will reduce the amount of ammonia being generated from bacterial processes in the gut. That will normally uh, help 
I'd still use phosphate enemas in in recalcitrant cases, which tend to, you know, which often just break the back of it and bring the patient back um, if they're not, you know, too deep. So one or two phosphate enemas can work. Um, there are second line medications like rifaximin to consider as well, uh, which is a broad spectrum, non-absorbable antibiotic, which modifies the what's going on in the gut with the bacteria. But that's a general approach to encephalopathy. But just bear in mind that if you've got someone who's comatose with a GCS of uh, four or five, you don't want to be messing about with lactulose. You probably need to be calling to your outreach team. Yeah, brilliant. And then another complication we've already discussed would be uh, ascites. We've talked about tapping and sending the fluid for analysis. And as we've already discussed, diuretics are going to be the mainstay of treatment for the for fluid retention all over uh, all over the body in uh, decompensated liver disease. Yeah, you need to make sure they haven't got SPP, obviously, and make sure it is what you think it is, bland ascites, you know, cirrhotic ascites. And if they are very distended or if they have a large volume of ascites, I think it's good to get a head start with, um, with a large volume paracentesis. Caution in the context of acute bleeding uh, or encephalopathy or renal dysfunction. Um, and if they have SPP, you don't want to be shifting... 10 litres of water out in one go. But if they're otherwise stable, then starting with a large volume paracentesis with albumin replacement for every two or three litres, 100 mils of 20% albumin is not normally what we give, will um, will get you a head start. And then if they're stable, you can come in with your diuretics um, and and usually commence uh, spironolactone and frusamide. Um, but you've got to pay attention to the sodium, the renal function, the weight loss each week and follow them up quite closely. You don't just uh, give them a prescription and say, see you in three months because they can often get into trouble with uh, with renal failure. Uh, but that's the general approach, yes. Brilliant. Again, hepatorenal syndrome, is that something you think that's worth touching on in terms of the acute management on the take? I think it's worth having an awareness of it, but not assuming that everybody with uh, renal dysfunction in cirrhosis has hepatorenal syndrome. Um, hepatorenal syndrome is a very specific condition that's almost diagnosed by exclusion, i.e. in the absence of dehydration or hypovolemia, in the absence of sepsis, in the absence of renal um, toxins or um, overdiuresis. If no, you have none of those things, then you might have HRS, in which case you can go down a particular treatment pathway, and that might include that might include terlipressin, for instance, which is a, um, a, a vasoconstrictor, um, very potent, which we give on the wards a uh, low dose to reverse some of that sort of splanchnic vasodilatation and systemic vasodilatation, which is the the underlying cause of hepatorenal syndrome and is a chapter in itself. We are recognizing now that terlipressin given on the ward can be associated with some respiratory side effects and volume overload. So we're being very, very, very careful with it and really don't like HRS being diagnosed in the first 12 hours of admission because you've got so many other things to rule out first. But having an awareness of that diagnosis is, is, is impressive, you know, if you're in an examination, as long as you're, uh, you couch it in those, in those terms. Well, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our discussion on chronic liver disease, but it is most certainly not the end of the podcast because our next and last feature of this uh, show is Quiz the Consultant. (laughs) 
it's that time of the show again where we shout out PassTest for their fantastic paces resource. As you guys surely will know by now, PassTest has a fantastic range of practice videos for you to watch to sharpen you up before your exam day. Some of which are closely related to this episode of Chronic Liver Disease. So to get access to those videos and many more, just click any of the links in the show notes. Now back to our chat with Dr. Phil Berry. It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultants. So welcome to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our consultants take on a specialist subject of their own choosing with the caveat that it cannot be related to medicine. Phil, you mentioned at the top of the show, but what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? Well, that'll be the world of Star Wars. I am 51, so, you know, don't get it wrong. I'm not spending all my life watching Star Wars, but I have been through it twice because with my children, I've tried to indoctrinate them um, as, as is appropriate. So I've, I've had exposure at several <laughs> points in my life. Fantastic. And, and I'm always brimming with anticipation when I ask consultants on the show what their specialist subject is going to be. And regular listeners will have listened to everything from 80s pop to roller derby to the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> but this was up there and I was really I was waiting for the time when someone would pick Star Wars. And I'm, I'm really glad that we can we can tackle it today. And Phil, I've got to ask, what what is your opinion on the newer trilogy compared to the noughties trilogy compared to the classic 80s stuff yeah well i've enjoyed them actually um, i'm not too purist about it the last one i think was a bit of a disappointment the last um god who did it it was the uh jj abrahams wasn't it um but uh but i i even the middle one the uh god if i don't know the names of these films i'm not going to do very well but even the middle one of the new ones was really good i just thought it was fantastic lots of humor i've got no problems with the new ones at all i hope they do some more fantastic well phil to be truthful with you i'm not a fan of the new ones i'm much more of a of a noughties purist the prequel purist and oh, yeah. and of the uh and of the original uh 80s i haven't enjoyed them as much that's that's just me laying out laying my heart out on the uh on, on the floor for you so i have to be honest the, the quiz has focused more on the on the 80s and the and the noughties uh on the noughties ones it's probably a good thing to be honest yeah so this is how we play it's a 10 question quick fire quiz there are two points up for grabs if you can get the answer without the multiple choice and there are there's one point up for grabs if you need the extra helping hand of the of the multiple choice uh questions uh multiple choice answers sorry yeah i'm up i'm up for it so there's 20 points up for grabs so Phil Berry's Quiz the Consultant on Star Wars. Here we go. Question number one. At the start of the film, A New Hope, the very first Star Wars film, we find our hero Luke Skywalker living with his aunt and uncle. But which planet is he on? With well, a tattooing. It is tattooing for two points. And he's on the board. Uh, question number two. Again, in A New Hope, we're introduced to Princess Leia general of the rebel alliance who has stolen the plans for the galactic empire's death star and has hidden them inside a droid but which droid has she hidden them inside r2d2 is correct for another two points 
They see they start off easy and then they do. I've tried yeah. to get them harder. Anyway. <laughs> Question number three: What is the name of the ship piloted by Han Solo and Chewbacca, which features heavily in the original Star Wars saga? Millennium Falcon. It is the Millennium Falcon. Another two points. It's one hundred percent so far. Question number four: Who mentors Luke Skywalker in the art? Of becoming a Jedi after Luke seeks him out on Dagobah. That's Yoda. It is Master Yoda for another two points. Question number five. In The Phantom Menace, we're first introduced to Jar Jar Binks, a character belonging to a species of amphibious humanoids with large fin-like ears. But what's the name of the species to which Jar Jar belongs? They are Gungans. They are the Gungans. That's five for five. Still 100% so far. <laughs> Question number six. In Revenge of the Sith, we are introduced to an iconic cyborg villain who's able to wield four lightsabers at a time using his mechanical arms. But what's this villain's name? That's General Grievous. It is General Grievous. For another two points. Question number seven. Again in Revenge of the Sith, which Jedi Knight comes closest to vanquishing Senator Palpatine but is stopped by Anakin Skywalker who cuts off his hand uh, before killing him and saving Senator Palpatine bef- uh, who then uh, renames Anakin Darth Vader? Whoa. Mace Windu? It is Mace Windu. I was going to say they have to get hard at some point but yeah, <laughs> you, you still got it right. <laughs> Question number eight. What is the name of the microscopic intelligent life forms which reside in the cells of all living organisms that make up the force? Medichlorians. Medichlorians is correct, and we're still on 100%. Question number nine. Senator Palpatine turns Anakin Skywalker to the dark side by convincing him that the dark side of the force has the power to do what? Bring his... um... Bring Padme back to life. Absolutely. I've got save Padme Amidala's life. Absolutely correct. And this is for 100%. In Revenge of the Sith, what fiery lava-laden planet is the location for the final battle between Anakin and Obi-Wan Kenobi? Mustafa. It is Mustafa. And that gives you a 100% record. (laughs) It's 20 out of 20 for Phil Berry on Star Wars. You've done it justice, Phil. You did it. (laughs) I'm so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Much happier than anything else I've done today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Phil, we're so grateful for you uh, coming on the podcast today. That was a fantastic innings in uh, Quiz the Consultant. And we're really grateful for you uh, helping us Padawan learners become Jedi masters in the art of all things chronic liver disease. So we're so, so grateful for you joining us on the podcast today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. It's a great podcast. I really enjoyed it. That's very kind of you to say, Phil, and thanks again for for joining us. So, listeners, that is just about all the time we've got for this week's show. Don't forget, you can like, follow, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and please do take the time just to leave a five-star review if you have enjoyed the podcast. We always love to hear from you, so uh, please do get in touch. You can do that on our Twitter, which is at PrePacesPodcast, or via our website, PrePacesPodcast.com. And if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash pre podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast.